experience and testimony. Peter Williams now can come speak to us on experience. So, Thank you very much. Well, as some of you have seen already, uh, just in time for Christmas and the last week of Reasonable Faith, they finally, finally rolled my uh, book, Understanding Jesus, off the presses and got some to me. So, uh, whew, uh, thank you for those who've uh, been buying. It would obviously make an ideal Christmas present for yourself or someone else. Um, this topic is a topic covered in uh, the fifth argument of the cumulative case for the Christian understanding of Jesus presented in that book. Uh, and I think it's an argument that very much, um, I put it in, you know, structured the book in a, in a, in a very deliberate uh, manner. Uh, and this argument, I think, in the context of um, other things, other um, maybe arguments for God or historical knowledge about Jesus and so on, um, sort of really uh, caps off thinking uh, about God and sort of taps into the more sort of existential issue as well, takes it out of that field of this sort of abstract, philosophical, interesting discussion over there. And it actually says that, uh, as C.S. Lewis once put it, um, thinking about God is an intellectual issue, but if you come to think that there is one, you're no longer faced with an argument that demands your assent, but with a person who demands your trust. And then all sorts of other um, existential uh, and moral and life issues sort of come into the mix uh, beside um, the purely uh, intellectual at that kind of stage. Um, William Alston, American Christian philosopher, uh, makes quite a good point, I think, when he says this. If... I could not find any confirmation of the Christian message in my own experience, or you might add in other people's experience, I would be less justified in accepting that message than I am in fact. Suppose that no one had ever experienced communion with God, had ever heard God speaking to him or her, had ever felt the strengthening influence of the Holy Spirit in a difficult situation. In that case... Christian belief would be a less rational stance than it is in fact. Um, if it would be a point uh, against Christianity that nobody has uh, religious experiences of this kind, it would seem ipso facto to be a point in favour of Christian uh, truth that people do at least claim to have those kinds of experience. There's a couple of uh, objections that one might put to uh, arguing about religious experience uh, as any sort of evidence for believing the truth of theism in general or Christianity in particular. Let's take just two um, popular examples of this kind of uh, objection. There are others beside, of course, but we have limited time. Niles Eldridge, he expresses a sort of fundamental scepticism about the possibility of there being any genuine religious experiences. And he says that we humans can directly experience the material world only through our senses. And there's no way we can directly experience the supernatural. Well, from the assumption that humans can only have direct experience of the material world using our material senses, you know, sight, hearing, touch, smell, taste, etc., it does, of course, follow that humans can't directly experience the supernatural 
using those material senses. That does follow. Um, But it doesn't follow that humans can't directly experience the supernatural. Because it doesn't follow that humans only have material senses. Eldridge is, as it were, assuming a materialistic, atheistic worldview in order to object to the possibility of humans having experiences of the supernatural that are genuine. Well, of course, if materialism is true, if we are only material beings with only material senses, we have no way of experiencing the supernatural, which anyway, by hypothesis, wouldn't exist to be experienced, if naturalism's true. But he can't just gratuitously assume the truth of his view as an objection uh, against an argument for the opposite. Such a conclusion would really only follow if naturalism were known to be true. But you can't beg the question against the argument from religious experience by just assuming that naturalism is true, which is what Eldridge is doing, really. Besides all that, the fact that humans can't have a direct experience of the supernatural using our material senses, of course, doesn't mean that we can't have indirect experience of the supernatural using our material senses. So, for example, um, when the disciples in the upper room were suddenly face-to-face with the resurrected Jesus, if you believe that happened, they had rather powerful um, materially-based experiences that were indirectly evidence of the reality of the supernatural. (laughs) Okay? Secondly, an objection from Richard Dawkins. Um, I like to throw objections from Richard Dawkins in, not because they're powerful, but because they are uh, culturally persuasive. In uh, The God Delusion, this is how he responds to the argument from religious experience. He notes that experiences can be delusional, can be misleading. And he says, look, the brain simulation software, we, we piece together this image of the world inside our brains... Um, we, we have to interpret the data and all the senses that's coming in, and we selectively attend to it, and so on. We build up, using our brains, a, a picture of the world. This simulation software is well capable of constructing visions and visitations of the utmost vertical power. So our brains can fool us into thinking we're experiencing something when it's not actually real. Okay? Um, granted, I have nothing to say against the truth of that statement. But I do have something to say against the fact that that's all Richard Dawkins has to say against the vertical nature of religious experience. That's all, folks. That's his response. He says, this is really all that needs to be said about personal experiences of gods or other religious phenomena. If you've had such an experience you may well find yourself believing firmly that it was real. But don't expect the rest of us to take your word for it, especially if we have the slightest familiarity with the brain and its powerful workings. Now, good grief, you wouldn't expect there to be any neuroscientists in the world who are Christians who think they have religious experience, would you? Obviously not. You know. Gracious me. Look, Dawkins' attempted rebuttal here, it doesn't even rise to the level of an argument against religious experiences. This, this doesn't even rise to the level of an argument. Um, 
he's failed to advance more than one premise. Uh, and it's basic logic that you need to have at least two premises in order to deduce a conclusion from them. So this isn't a rebuttal at all, not even close. Uh, observing the brain can create illusions provides absolutely no reason for the conclusion that Dawkins is driving at that all religious experiences are illusions. This is his argument. Premise one, the brain can deceive us. Conclusion, therefore, all religious experiences are deceptive. What can you say? You know... (laughs) Uh, and indeed, if you try and think this through and think, well, you know, let's help out here. Let's be generous to Dawkins and try and construct the best kind of argument along these lines that we can think of. We'd obviously need to fill in this missing premise. But you start thinking about how would you fill that in? You think, I'd need to fill it in with something that would restrict the, the delusory nature of experience to religious experiences because otherwise my premise might sort of infect my other experiences. You need a premise that would say, well, religious experiences are going to be delusory all of the time, but other kinds of experiences aren't, like your normal physical experiences. Because otherwise, the argument would become self-defeating. Because otherwise the argument would equally give you reason to doubt your physical experiences, which are the basis of you thinking that people have brains that can give them delusory experiences sometimes. And actually, when you try and construct that premise, it's surprisingly difficult to construct a premise that will restrict the sort of danger of being misled to only religious-type experiences without sort of flowing over and getting your other ordinary kind of experiences in danger as well. So you try and develop the argument, and it, it seems to be in danger of being, uh, no worries, see you later, uh, self-contradictory in that territory at least. So um, I've called this evidence for what exactly? Um, that's a good question to ask when you're thinking about the argument from religious experience. I've kind of drawn a bit of a vague graph here. And you can see we've got something called broad theism and Christian theism. We've got a nice broad arrow for, Christ- for broad theism and a nice narrow arrow for Christian theism because we've kind of stretched the evidence further over here to, to try and argue for something more particular in the case of Christian theism than if you were simply arguing for broad theism. So if, if this line here, sort of how wide the arrow is, is the sort of evidential value of the experience. And this, how tall the arrow is, is how specific the conclusion that you're trying to argue for is. It kind of seems to me that the more specific thing you try and argue for with the religious experience, the further you try and stretch it, as it were, the less powerful the argument becomes. It's not to say it has no evidential value, but you get the most evidential value out of, out of using religious experience to try and argue for there's some kind of supernatural reality that people have a vague awareness, of, awareness in the kind of numinous experiences that Chris was talking about last week. 
Whereas you try and stretch it into proving the truth of Christian theism or, you know, uh, Protestant Christian theism or whatever, um, then you're sort of stretching it a bit more, as it were. So as Charles Taliaferro says, broad theism is sufficiently extensive to describe or accommodate much of the central reported religious experiences in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the theistic traditions within Hinduism, Buddhism, African religions, Sikhism, Aboriginal or primary religions, theistic versions of Confucianism, and other religions. There's a lot of commonality that point to this, and when you're asking for, to do a more specific job, it gets a little bit harder because of the, the differences between them, perhaps. Amy Yor Ewing, I think, makes another excellent point where she notes that neither uh, mainstream Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God uh, of any kind, nor indeed Islam, theologically speaking, has any concept equivalent to the idea of a relationship with God, which is at the heart of the Christian message. You know, God, by his Holy Spirit, is meant to come and indwell the Christian and the, and the church, his body. So there's no parallel concept uh, in Judaism or Islam. This is why Christian testimony, specifically Christian testimony, a personal account of one's relationship with God through Christ, uh, underlines the uniqueness uh, of Jesus and Christianity. And you could also note along these kind of lines that really pantheistic religious experiences the sort of experiences where, where people will say, you know, I was meditating and I, I, I lost all consciousness of, of a difference between myself and ultimate reality. Reality is all one, isn't it? You know, it's all the one. Uh, it's actually a self-contradiction in terms. To say, I had an experience of the lack of a difference between myself and anything else. Who had an experience? I had an experience, but there's, if pantheism's true, you're saying the I, the self, is really an illusion. There is no I. So how can your having an experience give any evidence for the truth of a worldview that says there is no I? If you have an experience, you have to have an I to have the experience, it would seem. And indeed, a lack of experience of God is not the same thing, doesn't equate to experiencing God's non-existence. It's not that the atheist could come along and say, well, okay, you religious people, you Christians or whatever, claim to have an experience of the existence of God, but I have an equal and opposite experience of reality, i.e. I experience God's non-existence. Well, you have to be careful there, because just to not experience God by, say, only experiencing things that are not God. I experience the chair. I experience you. I experience the cup of tea. I experience the Andromeda galaxy. None of that is the same thing as experiencing that there isn't a God. So the atheists can't make that kind of equal opposite move. How's my time doing? Five minutes. Okay. 
quickly. Uh, N.T. Wright, talking about Christian experiences. Christians have claimed from the very beginning that though Jesus is no longer walking around Palestine, available for us to meet him and get to know him in that sense, he's indeed with us in a different sense and can indeed get to know him in a manner not wholly unlike the way in which you get to know other people, at least analogous to that. And in the book, I break down uh, different sort of categories or varieties of religious experience into six different categories, some of which are the more sort of subjective personal experiences, some of which overlap with uh, publicly available data and uh, give a number of arguments through these. And we won't have, obviously, time to go through all of these. And uh, Pete May will be picking up on uh, one of these categories, at least in his talk anyway. Another really important sort of move that's been made in this field in recent decades is Richard Swinburne's argument about the principle of credulity, the principle of when to trust your experience, and arguing that trusting experience is actually fundamental, that the burden of proof is on those who want to doubt the verticality of experiences. He says it's a basic principle of rational belief, called the principle of credulity, that what seems to you to be so on the basis of experience probably is so, in the absence of counter-evidence. So I'm open to being shown wrong, but I'm going to assume that I'm right until I'm shown wrong. And you you could only show me wrong if I have this attitude, because otherwise I would never trust the experiences that you're trying to use to show me that I'm wrong, until you gave me other experiences to prove that they were right. And other experiences to show that the experiences you gave me to show the experiences were, and so on. And you get into a sort of infinite regress of scepticism if you don't follow this principle. And then he says, and it's also a basic principle of rational belief called the principle of testimony, that what people tell you is probably true in the absence of counter evidence. So you might not have religious experience, he says, but other people do. They claim to have it. And by the principle of Credulity, they would apply that to their own experiences. By the principle of testimony, even if you don't have your own experience, then that does carry some weight at least. You need to have a a rebuttal, a counter-argument, in order to dismiss it. You can't just um, automatically, as just a priori assumption, dismiss the reality of someone's experience or testimony. Um, As H.H. Price also argued, you should accept what you're told unless you see reason to doubt it. So a basic argument from religious experience would go somewhat like this. Premise one, it seems to me that I have experienced God, or it seems to most people, and indeed that's true, most people, that they have experienced God. Premise two, we should trust experience or testimony unless given sufficient reason for doubt, and there is insufficient reason for doubt in this case, from which it follows that therefore it's reasonable for me or you to believe that God exists. Now, the argument's logically valid. If the premises are true, the conclusion does follow. The first premise is indubitable. If you have an experience, you can't doubt that you've had an experience. (laughs) Um, Or highly plausible. It's highly plausible that other people who claim to have religious experiences aren't lying their heads off. They've at least had the experience. The second premise, 
principle of credulity and testimony are axiomatic to rationality. Seem very hard to dismiss. But here's the loophole. It does have a crucial sort of all things being equal clause. It does have this unless you have a sufficiently strong rebuttal clause to it. As Douglas Grutice says, religious experience claims need to be weighed against other germane sources of, of evidence for or against a worldview. This underscores the fact that religious experiences form only part of a cumulative case for Christian theism, as I was saying at the beginning. But if you're putting that kind of argument into a context where you perhaps already think there's some reason independently to believe in a God, or you're at least agnostic, you're not committed to a worldview that says, no, there isn't a God, there isn't a supernatural, you couldn't have vertical religious experiences and so on, then it seems to be an argument that at least adds some weight to the accumulation of evidences in favour of certainly broad theism, and I would argue on the basis of some of the uh, other categories of experience and so on, the particularities of those experiences, perhaps even uh, for Christian theism as well. Okay, thank you. Okay, invite you to uh, any questions you'd like to ask about Jesus. Yeah. Have most people had religious experience? Yes. Really? Yeah. Um, so, it, I mean, there's been... A, you can look in terms of the statistics of how many believers of different religious worldviews and so on there are around the world... Um, B, you can look at it in, in terms of there have been a number of, of sort of studies run of the general populace and how many people would claim to have religious experiences of certain categories and so on. There's a famous centre doing this at Lampeter College at the University of Wales, for example, been some studies in New York University and things. And certainly all of the um, data that is available, shall we say, would point to saying the majority of people would claim to have some kind of religious experience in one or more of the categories that people define. Um, some are quite vague, some are more specific, but um, yeah, I think it's true to say, as far as I can see, that the majority would claim to have some kind of at least numinous supernatural experience of there being something other than the, the mundane material world around us. Um, uh, and the main, the biggest traditions, of course, are also ones that would attribute some sort of personality, of personalities to that transcendent reality. Yeah.